everyone, and welcome to Interdisciplinary, the podcast where massage therapy educators, practitioners, and positive deviants, Kathy Ryan and Cal Cates, use research, science, experience, and humor to explore the broad landscape of healthcare through a truly interdisciplinary lens. I am not Cal Cates. I'm filling in for Cal, Cal Cates. My name is Rebecca Surgeon. I'm the Education Director for Heal Well. And today, as in all of our episodes, Kathy Ryan and our guest and I will have an honest, sometimes uncomfortable conversation about topics like access, racism, death, ageism, ableism, and equity that addresses the intersection of being a human being and providing quality care so that we can expand our impact, confidently navigate new challenges, and together create lasting, sustainable changes in healthcare. As always, you'll always learn something, you'll always laugh, and you'll come away better informed and with real things you can do in your own community and practice to create a more compassionate and collaborative system of care for all humans. So welcome. Yay, Rebecca. (laughs) Thank you, Kathy Ryan. Yay. (laughs) So, um, Cal is not here, and, and they're usually the keeper of the puns, but to keep that tradition going... I brought one, um, but you know, you know, Cal's jokes are usually dad jokes, and I wondered if it was appropriate for me to tell a dad joke because you know I thought it might be a faux pas. <laughs> <laughs> that one took That's a minute. It. Yeah. <laughs> Just a second. Just a second. <laughs> that was that was a thinker. That one. <laughs> Good job, friend. So, so Kathy Ryan, how are you today? Oh, well, you know, I'm doing all right. The sun is shining, which is nice. And uh, it's still winter and uh, COVID is still a real thing. And just continuing to do my part as best I can to keep myself and everybody around me safe and healthy. How are things in Louisville? Oh, well, we we had some snow yesterday, and it was um, very exciting driving in the snow in a place that doesn't often get snow. Um, But yeah, things are good here. I uh, just got my first dose of the COVID vaccine last week. So yay for that. Um, Rollout seems to be going pretty well in town. And I'm, I'm really excited today to be joined by a guest who is also in Louisville, Kentucky. and I will let our guest introduce herself. So welcome. Welcome, guest. Hey. <laughs> Hi. Hi, everybody. My name is Sam Cotton. And yes, I am also in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, get excited about that and the snow. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm always, I'm a horrible academic because I always forget all the things that I do that I'm supposed to like, you know, add after my name. But um, I am a social worker by profession. Um, I have a PhD and a master's degree in social work. Uh, I work at the University of Louisville Traeger Institute, and um, I wear a lot of different hats uh, there, both literally and you know, <laughs> figuratively. I like hats. I'm not wearing one today, unfortunately, but um, that would have been a good joke if I were. That would have been uh, great. I, I know, right? I, like missed opportunity for a joke. I screwed up there. Yeah. Y'all are going to kick me off the show. Never invited back. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a geriatric academic career awardee. So um, a lot of my time is spent doing interdisciplinary, interprofessional training and education opportunities uh, for learners from social work, nursing, um, medical school, learners, um, pharmacy, um, just to name a few. And then I also work um, a lot on our Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Program grant, where I help in terms of coordinating um, our Alzheimer's disease and dementia-friendly communities initiatives. So I do a lot of community-based work um, and a lot of work with Um, in terms of the workforce development. So um, thinking through what are the evidence-based practices that we can help um, in terms of teaching, um, whether you're just starting out in your profession and you're going to work in healthcare all the way through that maybe you're a seasoned vet um, in the healthcare world, um, but what are some things that we can do to help in terms of you understanding um, what it means as you get older or some of the holistic integrative healthcare pieces. So that's, that's what I do in a nutshell. I'm sure I'm forgetting things that I, I do, but <laughs> well, that's that's our job to ask questions and see if we can draw that up. That's right. <laughs> I'll be like, oh, oh man. 
my boss doesn't listen to this. She'll be like, you forgot to talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then your boss will have to come on the podcast later. I know you should invite her on. She's very interesting. We'll talk about that. (laughs) 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 Um, So first of all, tell us more about the Traeger Institute, what it is and what y'all do there. Yeah. Uh, So we do a lot of different things. We, um, in terms of our work, very focused on, um, well, again, workforce development. So I mentioned some of the things that I do. Uh, we also um, are uh, the base for the Republic Bank Optimal Aging um, Clinic as well. And so we actually have a clinic on site where uh, we provide provi- primary care services uh, to individuals. And uh, we also have specialized care for the 65 and older population. Uh, we really um, are moving towards uh, trying to build out like a one-stop shop um, in terms of healthcare. So um, thinking through how, or what are those things that help individuals, you know, as they age um, and helping them age optimally. So at our clinic, in addition to the primary care services, uh, we have um, what we call our lot more of our lifestyle uh, medicine or wellness services that we have as well. So uh, we have acupuncture, massage therapy on site. We also offer um, a number of different exercise classes like um, Tai Chi, um, functional movement, yoga. Right now, a lot of those uh, classes are happening in the online environment because of COVID. Um, but the idea is that one day uh, we'll have that all in one space uh, so that when patients come, we're not just referring them out to other things. Um, they can come back to a place where they're comfortable um, and receive these different services. So the idea is, you know, if you walk through the journey of, a, with, especially with an older adult, um, you know, them having to go to all these different places uh, for coordinated care can really be a barrier for them. So we want them to have like that, that comfort place uh, that they can come to. The other thing that we um, really have focused in on, um, and this this predates us being part of uh, the clinic uh, before we even had a brick and mortar clinic. Uh, we have our flourish care model of healthcare that we implement uh, with patients, uh, typically 65 and older, but we do have some patients who are much younger than that who are enrolled in our programs because we don't really think that you know chronological age sometimes is really that person's true age. So maybe that the individual who's dealt with you know, structural inequalities that have prevented them from having, you know, access to um, adequate health care. And so that really ha- um, plays into, you know, a person's true age. And so what we typically do is we try to um, um, go ahead and help the individual in terms of connecting to different resources. And we have students who are part of our program who act as flourish care navigators. Um, and so they help in terms of coordinating services. So let's say a patient has um, a specialty appointment with um, uh, somebody who's outside of our clinic, right? So maybe this patient sees us for primary care, but they go to cardiology um, through our healthcare system. The student then goes and helps coordinate that appointment. They go to the appointment with the patient. They make sure that they can have that conversation with um, the, the provider when possible about what's going on in terms of managing care. Uh, we also do things like help them connect in terms of different social services that they might need as well. So uh, we do home visits um, with most of our patients when we can uh, to check in and see how things are going. Because, you know, a patient, you know, on the telephone or in the office can tell you all day long things are going fine. And then you get in the home and there's no food. Um, or, you know, you're working with somebody who has mobility issues and you get in the home and they have, you know, wood floors with rugs on top of them and um slippery um, and cause that's the potential for falls risk. Uh, There's also, you know, we get into the home and sometimes there's things that are um, difficult um, in terms of that person's everyday life that uh, like showering, having grab bars and things like that can be very helpful. So our, um, our interns who are, you know, learning and developing those skill sets do a lot in terms of the care coordination piece. And then a lot of that too is also education um, for our patients as well. So, Yeah. yeah. I mean, I could talk all day long about some of the different things. Well, we <laughs> <laughs> there is. I mean, this is, there's so much there. Like, it's so rich what you all are doing. And I'll, I'll go ahead and give my disclaimer now that um, I um, am the massage therapist at the Optimal Aging Clinic. So just started. So I'm just learning about it myself. Um, but I, I mean, there's so many 
different places to, to I go have in. a thousand questions. I'm not sure where to well, go. <laughs> go ahead, Kathy. Kathy, pick, pick well, one. Okay, I, I'm gonna. I mean, you you talked about how the the coordination of care. So when patients are seeing a specialist outside of your clinic, that you having like a patient advocate go with them to help them coordinate that care, which from my perspective, I think is one of those huge gaps in healthcare in general, because not everybody knows what kind of questions to ask, or sometimes if you're being given difficult information, it's it's challenging to take it in. So then you get home. I, I think in terms of my parents as they were aging and how difficult it was for me to get accurate information from them about what happened at their doctor visit. So, I mean, I ultimately got permission, you know, so that I could speak directly to their physician because my parents didn't live near me. Um, so I, that is fantastic. My other question around uh, interprofessional uh, dialogue within the clinic itself, are there, are there like group meetings where practitioners get together and talk about particular patient care and, and how that is coordinated? So we actually... Um have a couple of different ways in which that happens. Um, you know, providers are often very busy, right? Because they have a lot of the healthcare system. I, I mean, we could talk all day about the how it creates inequalities for most right. patients. But part of it is also um, uh, how uh, providers are expected to have, you know, back to back, like what, 20 minute appointments. So there's a lot in terms of that they cannot address in those appointments. That's just, especially for older adults, that's not a reasonable amount of time. Um, for um, them to get all of their needs addressed. So you have providers who are burdened by the system in and of itself. Um, so we have a number of different ways where our interprofessional team works together. Some of it's asynchronous and some of it's us coming together and um, really dialoguing about patient care. So we've put in a lot of measures for um, our providers to get feedback from. So our students actually task the provider's information um, in our electronic medical record system to keep them in the loop. Um, on what's going on with patients that we're actively working with on an ongoing basis. So that's that's more of the asynchronous way that we try to communicate in real time. Uh, also, when um, we do assessments with patients, uh, we try and upload like the PDF of that information for the provider to review when they have a chance to do so. The other thing that we do, and this is um, from a patient care standpoint, it's important, but also from a learning standpoint for our learners. So I don't know if I mentioned this. I said we had interns um, from a number of different disciplines, but uh, pre predominantly our individuals doing practicums or interns with us are with us about 20 hours a week. Right now we have about 63 learners um, from social work, counseling psych, and then we have doctorate and nursing practice psych students as well. Um, we also have one um, exercise physiology student as well who's doing an internship with us. So those, those students are expected every week to come to our interprofessional uh, workshops um, that we offer uh, weekly from like 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Wednesdays. But part of that um, is our case conceptualization meetings. And that's really the core of getting organized and uh, like figuring out what's going on with a patient um, and coming up with a, a very solid plan of care for that patient. And so case conceptualization um, is a time where students are able to present uh, cases of uh, patients that they're working with. And then uh, we also have, in addition to the students there, we have faculty uh, members from our different disciplines who attend that um, and provide recommendations, supervision, feedback. Um, we also have um, community organizations like our area agencies on uh, aging who come to those meetings as well. Um, and then, you know, other community organizations as we need them. Um, so a student might say, oh, I could really benefit from some advice related to, I don't know, someone in the housing sphere. They are more than welcome to, um, you know, get in contact with somebody there and invite them to case conceptualization. So sometimes our meetings are rather large for that. We sometimes have anywhere from, you know, we have 63 students who are expected to attend. So, um, you know, we usually have about five or so pharmacy students in addition to that. And then by the time you get all of the other people involved, it's about 80, 70 to 80 people, uh, depending on the week. So um, that's our time to really have conversations about that piece. Um, each student has about 20 minutes to present the case that they're working on and then about 10 minutes for recommendations from the team. So we usually get about two 
two patients that we talk about per hour. Now, you might be thinking, ooh, that seems inefficient because you probably have so many patients. But the idea is that this is a very um, excellent way for students, even if they're not presenting that week, to learn something that they can then implement with their patients. So it really does have that dual purpose. So even if you're not the person presenting, the idea is that you're sitting there and absorbing all of that information that your colleague is getting in terms of their patient. And odds are something's going to overlap there in terms of your patient caseload and, you know, some of the things that are going on with their patients. So, yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, I'm wondering lots of things, but I'm wondering also, since you mentioned like they, they might want some help from housing assistance or maybe somebody's food insecure or something like that, that can come up in the case meetings. Um, is this something like this kind of awareness of the social determinants of health, something that is built into your, your education program, or is it something that kind of students arrive with? Cause you're also yes. associated with the university as well. Yeah. Yes. So it depends on the discipline um, that students come from, um, whether or not they've touched on this at all. I would say that um, in terms of our uh, nursing students and our social work students, depends on what classes that they're in at the point of which we get them, because we have all students of all different levels from bachelor's all the way to, you know, doctorate. So it just depends, um, again, on where they're at in their curriculum. But some students come in with more of an awareness than others. Um, sometimes students come in with life experiences, too, that have really opened the doors for them in terms of thinking about this. But, um, you know, we really teach them right off the bat about our holistic care model. And I don't think I've mentioned this before. Um, So sorry if I repeat myself. I was actually teaching some of this content this morning. So I'm going to have to remember what I told my students versus what I'm talking about right now because there's a lot of overlap here. Uh, But uh, we, um, we do health risk assessments with all of our patients. So that we can right off the bat um, think through, okay, what are the risks for this pa- these patients um, that we're working with and what are the strengths? You know, what are some things that we can tap into um, into their life? Um, and in terms of our health risk assessments, we really look at six determinants of health. Um, we look at biological. Uh, we look at psychological. Individual health behaviors. Uh, we look at access to health services and affordability. Um, we look at environment, and then we also look at social determinants. So, you know, the, for most individuals, um, what we have found in our work is that, you know, you have individuals who ha- come from diverse backgrounds, right? And a lot of times, all that happens in the healthcare system is the biological piece is getting addressed, right? But we know that there's so many factors um, that play into what's going on in terms of the biological piece. So um, we really try to teach our students that, you know, in terms of all of these different areas, they're all inter- interwoven, interconnected. Um, you know, we also have, uh, you know, our counseling psychology students in terms of their training, um, they do a lot more focus on the clinical therapy practice piece, right? But our goal is to really help them um, outside of the training that they get in the classroom. We want them in their, their field experience with us to really start thinking through, okay, you know, this, the, the psychological health is connected to the rest of um, one's health. So how do we, you know, really work for, you know, in terms of looking at both in the connection between those things. So, you know, anywhere from thinking about if a person has depression, um, they, you know, fly for depression and we're going to start working with them in terms of doing therapy with them. What are they eating? Um, so thinking about, you know, those foods that can help them address some of their psychological needs. So really teaching them that it's all interconnected and that um, it's really important for us to focus in on the, the determinants of health. Yeah, yeah, there's, this is, there's like these holistic interconnected circles that I'm, I'm kind of seeing in my mind, you have this, this whole, all the different determinants of health, plus a whole bunch of different disciplines who are coming into this place and learning how to work together, mm-hmm. um, hopefully, <laughs> um, which is, of course, what this entire podcast is about. So I, I wonder what you are finding with students in terms of their understanding of or their approach to really working in an interdisciplinary, interprofessional kind of way. You know, I think a lot of students, when they first come to us, if they've never had any experience working in interdisciplinary teams before, interprofessional teams, they think um, it's the same thing as multidisciplinary. So they don't really understand the differentiation between those two terms, because in healthcare, we use multidisciplinary a lot. And honestly, we want to move away from that, right? Because what that means um, is that, you know, the, the, 
people who are working, maybe they're all working with the same patient, but they're all doing their own thing, right? Like, so in social work, I stay in my lane. Um, and I'm only, uh, you know, addressing uh, those uh, resource-related or access-related issues for the patient. I'm not addressing any of these other areas. It's somebody else's job. So I'm going to stay out of their way. With interdisciplinary, you know, we're really more focused on working together towards a joint plan of care. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you a good example of this in that, uh, in our terms of our training and how we approach this inter- interdisciplinary ways, uh, we have a project right now um, that we're doing with patients uh, who are um, uh, maybe they're they're not maybe diagnosed yet with diabetes or hypertension, right? So they're pre-diabetic um, or pre-hypertensive, and we're concerned based on all the metrics we're seeing uh, right now with them. So we're trying to engage them in this program where we provide them with a kit. Um, it's a remote patient monitoring kit where they can take their blood pressure. They can um, take their um, glucose, uh, blood sugar levels. They can, um, you know, check their weight. Um, uh, they can, uh, I don't know if I said this, there's a, a blood pressure cuff and an oximeter, uh, pulse oximeter as well. So they can manage all these things remotely. And then they have an app on their phone that we can also see what's going on with them from that end. So we have nursing um students uh, and social work students who are working together on this. And something from the beginning um, that we really try to uh, help them understand is that they're teaching each other things <laughs> as well along the way. Um, and so sometimes they come in at the beginning when we first start talking to them about the project and they think, oh, I'm nursing. I'm only going to be looking at the person fi- person's vitals. Uh, that's all I'm going to be doing. <laughs> and maybe providing them some education about what those numbers mean. And then the social worker thinks, oh, I'm just going to go do the home assessment while this person does this. And, you know, we're kind of doing our own thing. That's very multidisciplinary. So a lot of students come in with that mindset just because they think that's what we do. Um, but then they start really understanding, oh, we should really have this conversation. You know, we're working together. We're on the home visit together with the patient. Do you, let's look at the numbers together. Let's really educate the patient on all these different aspects of their life. So I would say that, you know, a lot of students really come in with that, uh, a skewed view of what interdisciplinary is. And then I leave really understanding um, what it means to work on a team and the value of it. Um, and that, you know, sometimes it's not about staying in your lane. It's about, you know, understanding what your colleague knows and contributing to that um, because all of that is involved in patient care. I mean, for me as a massage therapist, we're quite used to the hierarchy um, and and not really having our voice really being honored and considered. So a model like this for me really sounds like it's created in a way that there's true collaboration and that every member on the team is valued and their their input is valued. So for me, that is very exciting to hear that something like that is is hap- truly happening in the way that it is out there. And you know that's a struggle too. You mentioned the word hierarchy and um that <laughs> that comes up a lot because you're working with students. And so you have these, you know, bachelor's level social work students and they're like, I don't want to go talk to the provider about this. Like I'm just a student. <laughs> you know, they get really nervous and uncomfortable. And so part of it is, you know, really helping them learn the common language that we all have in the healthcare world and the medical world um, and being able to, you know, uh, be comfortable by the time that they're finished with their internship with us, going to the doctor um, or the nurse practitioner and saying, Hey, um, I, this patient's really struggling in this particular area. And let me show you some solutions that I'm working on with them and to have that, that common, uh, you know, language that we use. But yeah, it's it's a struggle because students feel it a lot when they first start. Well, and, and again, this comes from a massage therapy lens, but I think uh, the, even though we are not coming from a university setting, the potential that uh, your organization might consider internship for massage therapists down the road, I think would be such so much value for for this profession. Yeah, I think that would be really neat. Yeah, yeah. Well, just that, that there are, you know, um, complementary services like massage and acupuncture and, um, you know, yoga and other wellness services available. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love that, that that kind of puts it in, in front of the students. Yeah. Um, and what, what I've been seeing, and, and I think, Sam, you could speak more to this, is that it seems like there's kind of an interest in pulling those complementary quote unquote, complementary disciplines into that circle Mm -hmm. and into that conversation even more. 
Um, And I wonder what, what your thoughts are on that and how that could best be achieved. You know, I think that exposure to different um, ways that um, individuals can engage in um, their health care is really important for from a learner perspective, right? Because you cannot, as a student or, you know, going into the healthcare professions um, that we have here, be able to speak to and recommend these different types of services to patients um, if you yourself don't understand what they are. Um, I think we see that a lot more. Well, uh, well, I will say, I think with massage therapy, a lot of people um, have, uh, they don't necessarily see it as uh, healthcare. And so when students come in, it's a really great learning experience for them to see that it's part of our clinic services because they have like this one very narrow vision of what it can be and what that should look like. Right. Because of the way that I guess maybe the larger society talks about massage therapy. Um, Same goes for acupuncture. Um, We have a lot of people who have um, uh, hesitation in terms of, you know, uh, coming for that service. And so we've really been trying to. work with our team to figure out, okay, how can we really promote this? Because we know the benefits. Um, and so how do we get the, everybody who's in our circle already to understand that so that it, it really benefits the patients too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can we talk about the patients <laughs> some more? Yeah. Um, because a, a, a large part of the population you serve are, are older adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious about what your thoughts are on like this interdisciplinary approach, um, what are some of like the unique challenges and benefits of that for older adults in particular? Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that um, for a lot of our older adults that we work with, there's sometimes some hesitation. Um, And you might be thinking, what, there's all these great services. Why would they be, you know, hesitating to engage in this? Well, one, um, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, our healthcare system as a whole, now I'm not talking about us at Traeger, but I'm talking about our healthcare system as a whole, it's very illness focused. We don't spend a lot of time talking about prevention. So, you know, an older adult comes in and maybe they don't have that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they're not dealing with a lot as it relates to chronic conditions. But here we are recommending all of these other services um, that they can engage in, or let's pair you with a health navigator to help coordinate some of your care. And, you know, from their perspective, they're like, oh, I'm fine. I'm not sick. I don't need that. Because again, we, we train ourselves to talk about health as, you know, it's the same as sickness. We don't think about the prevention piece. So one, there's hesitation on that end, right? Two, I think that sometimes um, patients are a little bit skeptical about the services that they're receiving uh, through us because, you know, maybe they've had bad experiences with the healthcare system, too. So there's some challenges from that end. Um, But I would say that once, um, you know, for the patients that we have worked with um, for a long duration, um, and I mentioned that, um, you know, we, some of the services that we offer predate us being part of a brick and mortar clinic. We didn't have all that. We were just, you know, operating in terms of doing uh, home visits, mainly with patients and um, had some um, sites out in the community that we worked with and partnered with and saw patients there. So um, I would say that, um, you know, the patients that have been with us the longest and our students have been able to build rapport with, and then every year they get a new health navigator that they work with. It's for them, I think they see a lot of the value in it because they are able to look back and say, I was not in a very good place when I started, you know, working um, with this team. And here I am now and I'm able to better manage my chronic conditions. Now, I would say, too, for a lot of our oldest older adults, sometimes we're not expecting to see like a, a trajectory up in terms of some changes related to their um, different determinants of health. However, a lot of them are seeing that, um, you know, they don't they're not seeing a lot of change. Um, so there's not decline, which is really what we want, right? We want to see that. Um, so sometimes even just the simple things that we're able to do with our patients to build that rapport um, and that trust with them, I think means that all the, all the difference in terms of them accessing the services. Um, and then again, I would also add that um, we, um, as part of our different programs, do an annual wellness visit. So a Medicare annual wellness visit, um, if anybody's familiar with that. And sometimes when we call to get patients set up for those, um, they're in disbelief that it's a free appointment and that it's going to be an hour long. Because it's just not you. It's not part of like what we talk about a lot of times in the healthcare world. So um, 
I would say that, you know, once patients understand what we're trying to do, they're really excited about it. Um, I'm very interested, but sometimes there's hesitation. I totally get it um, because they, you know, because of the way the healthcare system structured um, as a whole. So, and that was going to be one of the things that I I wanted to touch on is accessibility. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for for individuals out there who do not have extended medical insurance, can they mm-hmm. still access care? So what we typically try to do, too, is um, one of our missions um, from the very beginning was to work with medically underserved and rural patients, um, especially because we receive funding through um, different various grants that are um, focused in that, those areas or those spaces of that conversation. And so we do have some patients who, um, you know, we're working with and doing some of the, the chronic care management like work. Um, and so they receive that for free as part of um, that program that we have our flourish program um, for the patients that are able to, you know, that we're able to bill for and um, uh, they can pay for services. They do that as well. Uh, so we have, you know, kind of a mixture um, in terms of our service base Um you know, I would say in terms of access to though, something that can be very frustrating is that when we have, um, for, from the patient standpoint, can be very frustrating. Um, behavioral health, and you know, I think we don't put enough emphasis on that when we talk about the healthcare system. And there's a lot of barriers and challenges for people to access uh, behavioral health. If you need services and you have insurance and you have to pay a copay every time, sometimes it can be like sixty to ninety dollars or even more than that. Um, for you to receive therapy. That is um, really bad (laughs) because we have a lot of patients who can really benefit from services um, who aren't necessarily getting it. And maybe they're not connected because we use a lot of students for the work that we're doing um, as part of their training. We're able to provide some services for free that way, right? That's what makes it sustainable from our end. Um, But if people don't have that connection, you know, I'm thinking about, especially in our very rural parts of Kentucky, for example, um, access to something like that, that, that makes it very difficult for them. Uh, so those are things that we have to think about. And I think we're always having those discussions about, you know, how do you keep the lights on <laughs> versus how do you serve patients? And yeah. so I think, you know, there's always going to be that tension because of the way our healthcare care system set up. Well, and, you know, I mean, you touched on, um, you know, we're, we're so focused on illness care and there's very been very little attention given to prevention. And I think COVID has exposed a lot of areas of deficit in society and certainly in healthcare. And I know here in BC, the Ministry of Health, one of their priorities is keeping people in their communities, trying to Mm -hmm. keep them out of long care facilities. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we're seeing some of the horrific issues with some of the long care facilities. Certainly here in Canada, we've seen some of uh, the information coming out of there even before covid what the, the issues were. So having programs like this that are starting to help push that culture shift around thinking, around encouraging all of us as a population to start thinking about uh, more about wellness and prevention um, really supports that initiative, you know, going forward um, to try and keep people in their communities for as long as possible and ind- independent, you know, with some assistance can stay in their home mm-hmm. as long as they've yeah. got a bit of help. Um, And I would say, too, you know, you have to think about, you know, a number of different factors. And something that we really try to do here at Traeger, and we also train our students in this, is the 4M model of age-friendly healthcare systems. And so part, the first M is what matters most to the patient. And so for those patients who want to stay in their own home for as long as possible, you know, we want to try and help them actualize that, whatever that looks like for them. Um, what matters most can sometimes be very simple things, but a lot of times I do think it, it goes back to um, that that feeling of um, being independent in one's own home to the best of, you know, with assistance if needed, but in their home because that's their safe space. That's where they want to be. Uh, so looking at how do we help individuals actualize that as a um, a large part of our conversation. Now, you know, we do do a lot of work with um, long-term care facilities as well. Um, And a lot of that really centers around um, addressing some of those things that I think you're probably uh, talking about that have been coming out of some some facilities. Um, And, you know, focusing on that compassionate care piece 
um, especially for those patients who um, are residents of those facilities who have Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. So really thinking through, okay, looking at the behavior that might be um, causing um, the situation, but what, what's causing the behavior? Let's start there. You know, for some individuals um, with um, dementia, even taking a shower can be very overwhelming. So, you know, um, having them get into a shower, it's to them loud, especially if they're having a, um, if they have any kind of audio um, issues. Sometimes the water pelting them can be very dis- um Um, disturbing to them because it hurts. It's painful. It does not feel good like it would for any of us. Uh, So thinking through those things, because if a patient or resident of that facility is getting agitated or aggressive every time they go to help them take a shower, you know, we need to figure out how to address this. You know, is it, it's not worth it to cause that um, type of distress for the person every time. So how do we implement these compassionate care models? Um, You know, thinking about how, you know, that's all basic care. Like, we focus a lot on basic care. How do we do that? And I'm not saying you don't need that in nursing facilities. You clearly, obviously need to help people with those basic activities of daily living, right? That basic nursing care. But how do we elevate that and add in the, um, add in the, the compassion piece and really spend that time? Um, and so I think sometimes in terms of our, our, we don't really spend that much time talking about that. You know, it's more focused on that basic nursing care piece. So uh, I would say that in the work that we do in long-term care facilities, it's this, it's really uh, honoring that per- the person, honoring the resident or the patient, and how do we figure out ways to do that? Well, and, you know, that's such an important piece. And certainly one of my rants as a massage therapist, one of, one of the areas that I often talk about in our, our uh, professional world where there's a real deficit is we do not have a pathway for um, advanced clinical practice kind of training, right. particularly for like specialized populations, right? Yep. So, you know, it's kind of like, we had a, a guest on talking about infant and child massage and, and it's not just your same massage. You're just working on a smaller body. Okay. No, yeah. you only use um, your fingers. So the same thing I'm working with, with elders. It's not, you know, just a, a body with a few more years on it. That's not the case. There are some special sort of situations that we need to be mindful of. And I think the the shower piece is a classic example of a piece that most people probably wouldn't even be aware of and just get mm-hmm. agitated with that person, you know, yeah. just get the heck in the shower kind of thing. Right. So I, that is for me, um, one of those things that compassionate level of care, um, I might have to move to Louisville. <laughs> We don't have, you know, the same kind of furry animals that you have. No, but I am getting older, you know, and having, knowing, knowing that there is an, or, there, there is a facility and organization out there that is putting together what you're doing is really exciting to me and, and hopefully starts to become the norm rather than the exception. Yeah. And I would say too, you know, something that, you know, it's really interesting because we have all of these great grand ideas about implementation of our different programs. And sometimes they don't look as, um, they don't end up getting executed the same way in which we had envisioned them. Right. Um, And part of that is um, because of the whole system, at a, a large, you know, we have to really kind of figure out how do we make this fit into these little boxes. Um, and so, I mean, I wish that we lit my dream, I guess, for the healthcare world would be that, you know, we were able to pilot more projects and to really be able to, um, you know, without all of these different parameters, um, figure out some of these different best practices for individuals. Because I think a lot of times our um, programs can get stifled um, by s- some of those challenges, just just that are apparent or inherent in the system um, at this point. So, um, I dream of a world where we don't have to have these discussions. <laughs> like you're, you know, you're being concerned right. about, um, you know, as you get older. Like I wish that that wasn't a fear that people had to have about like what their care is going to look like. I wish it was just part of, you know, what we did in our system. Um, and so, yeah. Um, that really resonates with me, what you just said, because I think about, um, you know, all of my loved ones that I've worked with in terms of the care. And if you don't have somebody advocating for you, sometimes you don't have that person, on, you know, in your team helping to fight for you 
it's it's problematic, right? And you can get lost in the shuffle. And I, I, I just wish that our our system, you know, if we were to completely dismantle it and um, start from start fresh, I wish we could do that because I think there's a lot to be said for um, just some of the structural things that we have in place with our system uh, that we could do better. Well, you know, with COVID, this might be a, a perfect opportunity to start to deconstruct some of what has not worked very well and start to look for better ways moving forward. So uh, you have my vote, Sam, uh, <laughs> to, to help start out the problems and figure out better solutions moving forward. Right. Oh. Right. Well, the, I'm, I'm wondering about too, the, the um, going back to the, the shower example that made me think about like compassion and kindness training and, and how does that figure into particularly working with older adults? Like I started my career working in a nursing home. So that's kind of always been where I've been oriented. But I've seen people who work in nursing homes who are maybe not oriented that way um, get frustrated in ways that um, affects the care. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and um, kind of need and I think we all need a little bit of um, humanity training. Uh, yeah. For lack of a better term, and I wonder how that figures into the work that you do. With this yeah, story. so we we talk about that a lot. Um, well, I've done a lot of work with CNAs and training um, them in terms of compassionate caregiving, but I also try to encourage the students who are going through our programs to think this way too. Um, you know, I think sometimes students come in and they encounter their first um, difficult or challenging patient, and they think that person's just being stubborn. They don't want to be part of this program. They're just, you know, they are, they are who they are. And they, I, th- I really encourage them to critically step back and think about, okay, there's a reason why this person is upset about this whole system. You know, they may, you don't know what they've encountered in terms of the healthcare system. And it is fraught with trauma for a lot of individuals. You know, the first time they ever went to, you know, a doctor's office um, and, you know, maybe their um, BMI was high and the doctor just said, you need to lose weight, fresh fruits and vegetables. Well, they can't afford that. So, you know, how do we, you know, that just immediately turned them off because they were like, I can't afford what this person is telling me. They don't even care. So thinking through how do you step back and say, okay, this person has a lifetime of things that have happened to them to they've gotten to this point. So really think about that. You know, they um, also think about the fact that, you know, for some individuals, especially as it relates to helping find those anchors that will motivate them to make those changes as it relates to their health behaviors, um, you know, they have they have a whole lifetime of doing things a certain way or being taught a certain way that are now ingrained into how they approach their health. Right. And again, I think some of this comes back to that societal um focus on illness instead of prevention or, you know, from that standpoint, right, in the way in which we talk about stuff. So really teaching the students that, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to help them change their behaviors in a day. You know, that's, that's not what you're here for. You know, that's not the goal. Your goal is to really help them find their motivation um, for making those changes. And so really trying to instill that in them because it can be frustrating from the student standpoint because we teach them all these wonderful things that they can do with patients. And then, you know, they get stuck uh, sometimes when um, they encounter individuals who have just really struggled with the whole system from the beginning. Um, So, Yeah. And I wonder if sometimes for providers, I mean, I've, I know I've come across this um, sometimes with clients that the, sometimes the hardest thing is to just kind of accept, not defeat, but accept that this person's approach to their life is different than what mm-hmm. you might yes. think it should oh, yeah. be. Yeah. And so that's where we talk about what matters most to the patient. What you as a practitioner think matter should matter to the patient is probably going to be different than what matters to them. So you always need to go with, you know, they are the expert of their own life. Yeah. You know, you are not. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really trying to meet the patient where they are and figure out what matters most to them. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, that there's something to really be said for that. And we don't um, address it enough um, across the board. Right. Yeah. I believe that's called patient-centered care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, so that's, that's compassion or love of a long duration. 
Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, with patients, um, I was telling uh, some of the nursing students we were working with this morning about a, a patient that has been engaged in our program for a long time. And I was trying to explain that concept of this person's been with us for this many years. And I explained all the different things uh, that I won't get into here, but uh, what was going on with this person. And uh, you could just see them being like, oh, wow. Like, you know, it takes a really long time sometimes to get from point A to point B. Um, You know, you don't make changes overnight. Uh, And sometimes uh, we also have to explain to students, um, and this also goes, extends from um, you know, thinking about health, physical health and all of that to mental health services as well. Sometimes the things that you work on with a patient, you're never as the practitioner going to get to see those actualized because one day, six years from now, a light bulb's going to go off and they're going to tap into some of those things that you taught them, but you're never going to see it. Um, same, same goes for therapy. You might work with somebody, you know, for several years and, you know, they go move on and three therapists later, they have this like, you know, epiphany as it relates to what's going on with them. So it's it's more about their journey, not about yours as the practitioner. And so sometimes you have to think about it from that standpoint too. And that's a difficult concept from the beginning for students, but oh, we get there. Saying that though, you know, as a massage therapy educator, you know, that's something that I've spoken to too, is that we as a, as a professional cannot be attached to an outcome. You know, we we show up and do the very best job that we can, and and don't get attached to a particular outcome because it's not we as humans. Not about us. Yeah, Yeah. it's not about it's not about us. It's about the patient. Yes. Or isn't it? It's always very interesting when I have to have this conversation because I feel like across the board we must be just as humans, very per, like us centered or narcissistic. Right. Like, <laughs> here we are in health, the health profession field, all yeah. of us, like massage therapy, so short, nursing. You know, here we are having to like have these conversations about like yeah. it's not about you, <laughs> it's about the patient. Yeah. Um, it's just very interesting how we're very individualistic and sometimes in the way we, even those of us who are in these um, caring professions, you know, we have to separate, detach from those sorts of ideals or bias. Maybe it's a bias. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, well, I think it's. I think it relates to how our brains work. Right? This is how our brains process information. We we um, we take shortcuts because mm-hmm. if you had to notice everything all the time, yeah, that's that's a little much. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and try finding out how how to like notice the shortcut and go the long way around instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounds like it's it's kind of what you're doing with the with the students in the program. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want well, to be an intern. Come on down. I want to be one of those thirty one years in practice and and come an intern. Yes. Yeah, do it. Absolutely. We'll welcome you. Yeah. Do we have an international student program? Is that? <laughs> I don't know. I'll look into it. <laughs> I'll figure it out. I can kind of slip in once the border opens. Yeah. Oh. I felt my philosophy is always, you know, like let's just say yes and figure it out as we go along. Yeah. My, like my like philosophy. That. <laughs> so sometimes it does not go so well for me, but usually I figure most things out. Fifty-fifty. <laughs> so I like your odds here. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> that seems like that seems like how kind of how trigger works like yeah we can do that yeah. let's figure out how <laughs> well, you know I have found like in my experience um um and you all really need to have Dr. Fall on um Anaki Fall because she could really speak to this too but sometimes it's just about leaning into those opportunities and saying yes in that moment and figuring it out because you never you're it's so unexpected like what will happen um like a good example of this is this remote patient monitoring project we're working on it amazes me like our especially our social work students have been with us longer um at this point and so they just jump in and take ownership and learn by doing and getting comfortable with ambiguity and practice because when you do a home visit, you don't know what you're going to expect. And yeah. I can't teach you that. I can't teach you every little like thing that could show up when you go to a home visit. I mean, I've done home visits where the, the patient has had no flooring. Like we walked in the and the person had, uh, you know, mobility concerns right off the bat, had no flooring. They only had like what, like the plywood almost that was un- wow. that normally goes underneath flooring. You yeah. know, we went into homes with no food. We went into homes where, um, 
it was really, you know, situations that needed to be addressed urgently. And you cannot prepare somebody for that. You kind of have to go and learn as you do. Um, and so really encouraging uh, students to be comfortable with ambiguity. So I think that that's one of the first things we always ask students when we interview with them <laughs> is how uh, for practicum, we always say, are you, com- do you understand what ambiguity is? Do you tolerate ambiguity in practice? Because <laughs> that's what, that's what a lot of social work is. You yeah. have to, you can't, nothing fits in a box. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of what every profession is. That's, yeah. I think that's a great exposure for a human who's going to work with other humans. Because, <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. you know, these brains are big and unpredictable. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I'm sure, like, from a massage therapy standpoint, I mean, uh, you all probably get people who, you know, in the moment disclose things to you that you would not have thought that that would have happened in that session. So, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always it's, like, yeah. what is my keep calm face? You know, yeah, <laughs> like you're freaking exactly. out inside. We, that's something all humans, I think, have to practice from time to time is what you, when somebody says something to you that you're like, oh, I got to address this now, but looking calm while doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That learning how to, to I mean, whatever you call it, keeping calm, holding space, you know, yeah. keeping, keeping the environment. Um, absolutely vital well um thank you sam for being here for this discussion and um for for all of the information and man this is this has been too much fun um the rest of my day is not going to be as fun after this (laughs) what were more fun than the students yay uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it was a, you know, like more of a conversation. Sometimes when I teach, I feel like I'm a talking head, just, you know, especially the first few weeks, because um, there's a lot of information to disseminate. So I'm just a talking head at the front of the table or on the computer. So this is good. <laughs> Real conversation. Well, yeah, we're, well, we're delighted. Um, thank you so much again for, for being here with us. And um, thank you everyone who is listening. Um, there will be a link to the Trigger Institute in the show notes so you can check out a little bit more about it. Um, and sitting in for Cal Cates, I am Rebecca Sturgeon. And I am still Kathy Ryan. And yes, Sam, thank you so much. And, and thank you for um, being uh, a, a great example for all of us. The, follow with regard to how we should be approaching healthcare. So thank you so much for that. Thank you all for having me. I really appreciated it. You are welcome. So this has been another episode of Interdisciplinary, the healthcare podcast from Heal Well. Um, You can subscribe, give us all your likes and all your pets likes and all of your stuffed animals likes um, and reviews. It really helps us out. Um, We have a Patreon um, which the link will be in the show notes. So if you love Kathy Ryan and Cal Cates and good conversations, um, check out our Patreon. You can get episodes early and some special goodies there. Um, and you can find us on all of the podcasting outlets and on our social medias. And we'll look forward to hearing you next week. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. You can send us feedback at info at healwell.org. That's info at healwell.org. New episodes will be posted weekly via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our Facebook page. Thank you.